You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. What say our co-editors? Dear Editor, Since sending you Man-Ape the Mighty, I have read of a Russian scientist who removed the brain from a dog and kept both alive for some hours, which only goes to prove that science outstrips the wildest dreams of the fictionist, and a yarn that may be astounding and unusual when written may be commonplace, and the knowledge of the man in the street by the time the story goes to press. People read every day of miracles and scarcely give them a second thought, while a hundred years ago their perpetrators would have been destroyed as witches. Far be it for me, or anyone else, to say that the main transposition used in man the Mighty is absurd and impossible. For while you or I may shrug shoulders and dismiss even the thought of it as being the dream of a madman, somebody, in some laboratory somewhere, may already have successfully managed it. So given the premise that the thing may be possible, I've sort of let myself go on this idea, and a whole new train of thought has been opened up. A whole new vista of astounding things in the realm of science fiction. In parentheses, I must thank you for getting me started on the thing. For had you not suggested the idea from the throne-like fortress of your editorial chair, Manape might never have been born. I confess that I would perhaps have been both afraid of it, both because of the possibility of the charge of following in the footsteps of the internationally famous Edgar Rice Burroughs, and of revamping the incomparable Potale. Murders in the Rue Morgue. But even so, both are interesting to dally with. Given the premise that the brain transference is possible, what would happen? 1. If the brain of a terrible criminal were transferred to the skull pan of an unusually mighty ape, and the ape transplanted from his arboreal home in Africa to the streets of London, Paris, or New York, whence the criminal whose brain he has originated, suppose his man's brain harbored thoughts of vengeance on enemies and he now possesses the might of the great ape to carry out his vengeance. 2. If Barter somehow escaped destruction at the hands of the apes in Man-Ape the Mighty and continued with his work of brain transference, building up a mighty army of great apes with the idea of avenging himself on civilization for wrongs real and fancied, apes with broad swords and chain mail with steel helmets on their heads, men's brains, savages' brains, perhaps, as their guiding intelligence, and the tenacity of apes when mortally wounded? Suppose they swept over Africa like a cloud of locusts, or is this too feeble a simile? Suppose Africa to be laid waste by them, led by Barter, the latter styling himself a modern Alexander of horrible potentiality, and extending his scope of conquest to the Holy Land, India, Asia, the Pacific littoral? Holy cats! 3. Suppose that Barter managed by purchase or otherwise, to acquire an island close to the American continents, within reach of either or both, and managed to transfer his activities there, using the natives of those islands, say Haiti, Cuba, Puerto Rico, etc., for his experiments, training his cohorts as an army, and starting a navy by capturing all vessels putting into these places. Fancy the consternation of the Western Hemisphere when ships suddenly go silent, as regards radio, after sudden mysterious SOSs, and all trace of vessels is lost. Suppose the U.S. Navy went to investigate, and also vanished. More holy cats! 4. Suppose in connection with all the suppositions above, that Barter desired to give an ironic twist to his experiments, and kept his human victims alive, but with ape's brains, as slaves of their man-ape conquerors? 
suppose that out of the horror into which the world would be thrown another bentley should arise to help the imprisoned humans to escape their ghastly bondage i can fancy his trials and tribulations trying to manage a host of human beings with the brains of apes five and what about the training of interns and medicos to help a potential barter when the trade got beyond his sole ability and apes with men's brains to perform his experiments do you suppose we'd all get locked up for experimenting with this sort of thing fictionally? I wouldn't care to take the entire responsibility myself, nor I fancy would you, because somebody might be inspired by our stories to attempt the thing. So might I suggest that all possible conspirators, in the shape of readers of this magazine, write to you or me and let us know whether they'd like to see it happen fictionally. If the idea appeals, and of course we can't go too heavily on horror, I'll do my best to comply, always within limits, however, utterly refusing to perform any experiments that can't be done with a typewriter in the usual two fingers. Arthur J. Burks, 17880 5th Avenue, New York City Like in Storybooks Dear Editor, Here I am again. This time I'm offering suggestions. Let's you and I and others get together and do something to these chronic kickers. It seems I can't start to enjoy our reader's corner without someone raising a halloo. Darn it, why in heaven's name do they buy A.S. if they don't like it? They are not compelled to do so. I also don't understand why people are knocking the size and quality of the paper used. It suits me okay. All the mags I read are the same way, and I pay five cents more for them too. I surely enjoyed Mr. Olog's letter in the March issue. Gee, it gives one the creeps. I agree with them, too, that we ought to have a little something about the authors. I'm sure we'd all like to know a little more about these talented persons. When the mountain came to Miramar was a great deal to my liking. I think it would be a great adventure to discover some secret cave and explore it. Of course, I'd like to wiggle out of danger, too, just like in storybooks. I certainly wish to congratulate you on publishing Beyond the Vanishing Point. It just suited me to a T. Heretofore, all stories dealing with life upon atoms have been just another story, but this one beats all. I enjoyed it to the utmost, and I congratulate Mr. Cummins on writing my favorite kind of story. All in all, the March issue was indeed grand. If Brown-Eyed 19 from Coronado, California will send me her full name and address, I'll promise to answer her letter immediately upon receiving it. Gertrude Hempkin, 5730 South Ashland Avenue chicago illinois and so do we dear editor it certainly is a swell idea of yours to answer letters to the readers corner personally instead of taking up a lot of room answering them underneath as do most editors not only that but it builds up a feeling of friendship between the reader and the editor besides affording more room to publish letters and avoiding some of the bad feelings sometimes directed upon editors when they do not publish someone's letter now, with your kind permission, I will burst into the little ring of discussion about size, reprints, covers, artists, and authors. First, about the size and edges. The size is okay, but I wish you would change the edges from a rocky mountain to a desert state. In other words, I would like straight edges in the near future. Next, reprints. In two letters, an N-O. No. If the readers want reprints, why doesn't Mr. Clayton publish an annual chock full of reprints for these reprint hounds? 
Covers and artists. The covers have all been great, not too lurid. Just right. As for the artist, Wesso is the best by a long shot. Enough said. Authors. Ah, that's a problem. Who is the best? I could rack my brain for hours and still not decide. So I have to give a list of my favorites. R.F. Starzl, Edmund Hamilton, Harl Vincent, Sewell Peasley Wright, Jack Williamson, S.P. Meek, Miles J. Buer, and Ray Cummins. Before I close, there is one little thing I would like to mention. Did you ever notice that 75% of all the readers who say they do not care for science in their stories are women? Besides that, the only ones at school who think I'm cracked for reading science fiction are females. Figure it out for yourself. I hope you, Mr. Bates, will continue to be our able editor for many years to come. Jim Nicholson, Assistant Secretary, BSC, 40 Lunado Way, San Francisco, California. 4-1. to Dear Editor, Congratulations to Wesso. His March cover for our magazine is astounding. Ray Cummins' novelette, Beyond the Vanishing Point, is absolutely the most marvelous of all his short stories. I can't rave over it enough. I never read his The Girl of the Golden Atom, but I imagine this must be something like it. It's certainly the best of the long short stories that's ever graced the insides of astounding stories. When the Mountain Came to Miramar is a very good story in my opinion. Terrors Unseen is a wow. No fooling. As for the phalanxes of Atlans, well, I simply can't get interested in it. I thought the first part very uninteresting, and decided not to bother to read the rest of it. But Wesso's splendid illustration made me do so. But I still think it is a rather poor story. But, true to form, someone will no doubt think it the most wonderful story ever written. Last but not least, of all the stories comes The Meteor Girl. It's by Jack Williamson. Need more be said? No. Forrest J. Ackerman, President, Librarian, the BSC, 530 Staples Avenue, San Francisco, California. That Awful Thing Called Love Dear Editor, Upon the occasion of my first visit to the Reader's Corner, I wish to say that Astounding Stories leads the field in science fiction stories as far as I am concerned, though at first I found them to be just so-so. Beyond the Vanishing Point by Ray Cummins proved interesting throughout. Terrors Unseen by Harl Vincent was fairly good, as was Phalanxes of Atlans by F.V.W. Mason. But now comes the rub. Just why do you permit your authors to inject messy love affairs into otherwise excellent imaginative fiction? Just stop and think. Our young hero scientist builds himself a space flyer, steps out into the great void, conquers a thousand and one perils on his voyage, and amidst our silent cheers, lands on some far distant planet. Then what does he do, I ask you? He falls in love with a maiden, or it's usually a princess, of the planet to which the reader has followed him, eagerly awaiting and hoping to share each new thrill attached to his gigantic flight. But after that, it becomes merely a hopeless, doddering love affair, ending by his returning to Earth with his fair one by his side. Can you grasp that? A one-armed driver of a space flyer. But seriously, don't you think that affairs of the heart are very much out of place in our type of magazine? We buy A.S. for the thrill of being changed in size, in time, in dimension, or being hurtled through space at great speed. But not to read of love. 
right here i wish to join forces with glenn owens up there in canada in his request for plain cold scientific stories sans the fair sex otherwise your our magazine is the best of its kind on the market w h flowers twelve fifteen north lang avenue pittsburgh pa brickbats for others dear editor brickbats and plenty of them are coming but not your way I'm throwing mine at those guys that want reprints, more science, etc. The only one I agree with is the fellow who would like a thicker magazine with more stories. Now for the brickbats. I'll bet a great many of your readers have read some of these reprints that some of our readers are crying for. I'll also bet that reprints would not help your friendly connections with a lot of your authors. The stories that are written now I find good. Let the present authors make their living from the stories their brains think up. As for more science, bah! Your present amount is enough. In another magazine, I read a story, and just as it reached its climax, they started explaining something. If any reader wants to write to me, my address is below. Author Man Jr., San Juan, California. Once Interplanetary Cooperation Dear Editor, Can you imagine... I have my astounding magazine, two whole hours, and the cover is still on. Let's have some more stories like Beyond the Vanishing Point by Ray Cummins in the March issue. Another thing, let's have more interplanetary stories than we do. I think they give you something to really think about. Why is it that in every interplanetary story, the other race is always hostile? Just think, would we, if we received visitors from space make war on them? Also, when our people make an interplanetary flight, would we go with intent to kill? Let's have some stories where the first interplanetary flight leads to cooperation between the planets involved. Dave Diamond, 1350, 52nd Street, Brooklyn, New York. In every way true, dear editor, I want to rejoice again over astounding stories. Reprints or no, and I hunger for them. The magazine must be described in superlatives. The reasons is pretty clear to me. After years in an experimental stage, science fiction suddenly turned up with a class of symbols in the shape of a definite magazine. It had to cover the whole field, and its successors tried to do the same. Due to its ancestry, its logical scope was the more technical science fiction farthest removed from sheer fantasy but nonetheless one of the most important branches. Now it is specializing in that type. When astounding stories appeared, many of us were apt to be skeptical, particularly when we noticed that an established corporation was backing it, one that had been limited to westerns and the like. The first few issues came, and there was a dubious tinge of the occult, the black magical. This petered out, and we noticed that no matter how poor the subject matter from the point of view of science fiction, the style of writing was almost always on the highest level. Then we realized that this magazine was no menace to the literature of science fiction, but a valuable addition. It could afford the better writers and hence keep up the quality of the work of every writer. It was adopting as its own a type of science fiction that the rest minimized, and that demanded good writing, a type having a skeleton of science, like the girders of a great building, holding it erect and determining its shape yet holding the skeleton of less importance than the vision of the completed edifice, stories with emphasis on the fiction rather than the science. But enough of that. 
Here is a hopeful thought for the time travelers. There is nothing in physics or chemistry to prevent you from going into the past or future, at least the future, and shaking hands with yourself or killing yourself. We will eliminate the past, for it seems that it cannot be altered physically. But take the future. Not so very far from today, the matter of your body will have been totally replaced by new matter. The old will disappear in waste. Physically, you will be a new man, and physically, the matter of today may destroy that of tomorrow and return in itself unaltered. But nonetheless, there will be some limiting interval during which you have not been entirely transformed to new matter, so that an atom would have to be in two places at once. Maybe time traveling progresses in little jumps like a mission of light, and maybe an atom can be in two places at once. If you are going to treat time as just another dimension, there seems to be no reason why an object which can be in one place at two times cannot be at one time in two places. This is all physics. The paradoxes of time traveling arise more particularly from its effect on what we call consciousness, the something that makes me, me, an individual. We can imagine an atom in two places at once, but not a soul, if you will. This will not bother the materialist who considers a living creature merely a machine, but it will most of us. So I must be content with offering a materialistic possibility of traveling in time. The Science Correspondence Club wishes to extend its invitation to all readers in other nations to join with all privileges save that of holding office. The latter may later be changed as our international membership increases. We have laboratory branches here, and we want them abroad in addition to scattered members. Then it will be necessary to have a governing body and director in every country. At present, all matters pertaining to foreign membership pass through my hands, and I will do my best to supply information to all who seek it. We will also be glad to hear of the work and plans of other similar organizations in other countries, as we are doing with the German Verenfer Rom Schilfert. Address all inquiries to me at 302 South 10 Broek, St. Scotia, New York, USA. P. Schuyler Miller, Foreign Director, SCC. End of section 21.